Today kicks off the first part of our history of AWA series. Fumi gives us an extensive background on AWA's deep-rooted history early on in this episode. And throughout the episode, we talk a lot about the importance of figures like Luthez and Pat O'Connor, Edouard Carpentier, and of course, Vern Gagne. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed, Spotify, Apple, wherever you usually listen to your podcast. It helps us so much. Please do so if you haven't already. Thank you. Oh, by the way, I have a book out. It's on Amazon. It's a Kindle book called Stronger Than All. It's a digital match guide. Every single New Japan Strong match for the first two years. Um, pick it up over there. All right, let's get right into the first part of our latest series, The History of AWA, Part 1. AWA Championship Wrestling. The AWA presents the greatest stars in professional wrestling, bringing you the best in mat action. Um, AWA is very interesting, you know. <clears throat> when you talk about AWA, American Wrestling Association, right? Mm-hmm. That that's the kind of name any wrestling company, you know, want to name your company, you know, big wrestling company, right? Sure. It's yeah, the first sure one that, enough, you know, comes to mind. Just like all Japan pro wrestling, all you know. Yeah, yeah, or Japan pro wrestling. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah, something like that. American Wrestling Association. Sure enough, there are about five different AWA in history. Did you know that? I did not know that. So there was the Vern Gagne AWA, and which other uh, ones? Actually, there? that was the last one. You know, you go back to all the way to 1929 that the Paul Bowser, Boston promoter, had a company called AWA, American Wrestling Association, in Boston. 19, end of 1990 and 1920 to 1930s. Oh, my gosh, right? And there was another AWA, Ray Fabiano AWA, in Chicago in 50s and 60s, into 50s, 40s and 50s then. Yeah. And... In Montreal territory in 60s, uh, at, at times, they called themselves AWA, American Wrestling Association, up in Montreal. And there was another one. Yeah, it's like, you know, wrestling print media in Japan back in, you know, mid-50s into 60s, they were translating English material into Japanese back then, right? Mm-hmm. They, there was a group of Jap- Japanese journalists in the 60s. They're all confused. How many AWAs are there? You know, <laughs> and Boston AWA, Chicago AWA, Montreal AWA, and there's, uh, yeah, basically, if it wasn't NWA, like National Wrestling Alliance, oh, sure enough, there were two NWAs too, National Wrestling Association and National Wrestling Alliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, Basically, the, the, all the other companies that came after National Wrestling Alliance, you can call it spin-off of, you know, near monopoly NWA. See, the reason NWA stopped breaking up was that, okay, N, NWA, so before we 
start talking about in Vern Gagne's AWA. Uh, give me a minute or two to go over this, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Please do. Yeah, and uh, the, the San Machinic NWA, the, the big, big, big time NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, starts 1948, after the war, you know? Mm hmm. And uh, it was a membership thing that uh, they, the idea was to share a come come on one world heavyweight championship. Therefore, that the, you know the, the world heavyweight champion have more privilege and uh, yeah, like a, be authority of wrestling business that that uh, you share one common world heavyweight traveling champion, and each territory will have their own business, whatnot. And also the, the NWA worked like a blackballing company that uh, they own, NWA only recognized one wrestling promoter in one geographic area. Mm -hmm. And was some, was some somebody new come into your town and start wrestling company, um, they'll help you to beat them. <laughs> mm, right. it's, it's, that's like, that's, that's the idea is against free enterprise, right? Almost. Yeah, I mean that's one way to think of it for sure. Yeah, because who owns the rights to the business? Nobody, you know. Whoever wants to start your own business in in America, you know, especially that uh, you're free to do so. But uh, it was the idea was more of a monopoly, you know, like a creating a monopoly, and uh, monopoly would usually um, uh, kind of like destruct within. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. And sure enough, not even 10 years, 1959, NWA started breaking up, you know, in pieces. Uh, but something has to happen in the ring too, right? That in June of 1957, in Chicago, then NWA undisputed world champion, Luthes, drops the title to Edouard Carpentier. Does the name, name familiar? He was a... Uh... Would you call him a high flyer? Not a yeah, high flyer. yeah, 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 yeah. He's very um, acrobatic. A gymnast. Yeah, acrobatic, but yeah. also very strong. And uh, um, his, his name was Edouard Carpentier, but he was from Poland, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, that the mixed um, data that it's, you have to, there's like a, according to historian, there are a lot of different stories. And he was, he was French, and also he was in circus. He was also a wrestler, and some people credit uh, Edouard Carpentier as somebody who discovered Young Under the Giant in Paris. Mm -hmm. and, but that's also a fairy tale too. Anyhow, that he was important figure in six in the early sixties professional wrestling because uh, because of this, you know, his you know gymnast, you know, like innovative style. But he was a big draw. You know, he can pack house. That's what's important in the wrestling business, right? Yeah, and he and besides being, I mean, the way that he drew was he was just um, an innovative kind of wrestler, very fun to watch, especially for the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to make a long story long, long story short, Edward Carpentier beat uh, Luthes in Chicago. Okay, and that was one of those uh, title switch at the building. Edward Carpentier uh, beats Luthes and, and uh, you know put his put the championship belt around his waist and bring the title back home to Montreal and start defending the title. 
okay? Mm-hmm. And in, in Chicago, the third fall was uh, forfeit. Therefore, a title wouldn't change hands. Ruthes still is champion. Yeah? Then, then so there's uh, two different, you know, world heavyweight champion. And a little bit later on, that uh, Ruthes uh, travels to Montreal and then beat Edouard Carpentier to end the controversy. But by then, uh, Carpentier already had traveled around the, you know, around the United States. And uh, people like Killer Kowalski beat uh, Edouard Carpentier in Boston. Therefore, Killer Kowalski is recognized as world champion in Boston. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, he travels to California. And uh, the, the basically, Freddie Blassie beat Edouard Carpentier. Therefore, he, Freddie Blassie and his group, I mean, the promoter, uh, recognizing Carpentier as, as uh, I mean, Freddie Blassie as new world heavyweight champion. Therefore, WWA, Worldwide Wrestling Associate, starts. And uh, he, he did uh, run horn. And a uh, lot of spin-off of uh, world heavyweight champions started appearing all over the country. Making sense? Mm-hmm. The reason that we're doing that was that uh, promoters weren't getting along. Uh, that's one thing. But in 1958, following year, uh, interesting thing happened that the Justice Department uh, of the United States of America, just Justice Department, for, for real, you know, mm-hmm. uh, came in and investigated pro wrestling if it's not a monopoly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it antitrust. operated like antitrust. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they seriously, they, the reason the wrestling was investigated was that uh, they, you know, that the Justice Department investigated professional boxing first, if it was a monopoly, you know, and uh, just like the, the exactly what we were talking about a minute ago, that uh, this country, America, the free free world and a free enterprise, right? There should should be no monopoly, antitrust, and uh, they investigated boxing first. Then they they investigated professional wrestling if it wasn't a, a monopoly. And what they did then was, uh, what do you call it, a uh, consent decree that mm-hmm. uh, pr- promoters sign, sign the thing, ain't doing it, right? And we're off an enterprise. They went back, did exactly what they were doing. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, they agreed, they... and they went about their ways, and they just kind of went on. It was kind of an unspoken sort of arrangement. Yeah. But the consent degree was there legally, you know, and then they they told the authority that uh, no, we are not, you know, a monopoly and we are not operating as such. And this and the promoters signed. They went back to exactly what they were doing. But uh, in reality, when Luthes was champion, he was a big draw and he was good champion and he was traveling world heavyweight champion. It worked as 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 NWA was designed. You know, and uh, 1957 on, after Edward Carpentier things that uh, Luthes losing a match with controversial, you know, fashion that would create all kinds of spin-off world cha- heavyweight championship. That's what I'm talking. About. You know, so it's not as undisputed world champion uh, as much as NWA wanted wanted to be, mm. but. Uh, uh, after that, and is it Luth, you know, NWA World Heavyweight title goes from Luthes to Dick Hutton, uh, former Olympic wrestler, uh, Dick Hutton to Pat O'Connor, 
and Pat O'Connor to Buddy Rogers. Then after Buddy Rogers, uh, back to Luthes. In Buddy Rogers' era, you remember, you know, original WWF was formed. You know, mm-hmm. today's mm-hmm. WWE's root, you know, Worldwide Wrestling Federation with Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, same, same way that uh, the, today's topic in the AWA, our AWA, Vern Gagne's AWA, that uh, at the time, NWA World Heavyweight Champion uh, Pat O'Connor wouldn't take Vern Gagne's challenge. Therefore, group of promoter from Midwest, Minnesota, the uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, the Iowa, the Illinois, the Wisconsin, the part of Canada, that they all recognized Vern Gagne as their common world heavyweight champion. Therefore, AWA starts. Storyline-wise. Mm-hmm. Are you following me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but reality is, though, like you and I talked about five minutes ago, there was like a five, six AWA around country. You sure. Know, you know, and then, uh, actually, before this uh, Minneapolis promoter crying, you know, giving uh, recognizing Vern Gagne as their first AWA World Heavyweight Champion. There was another AWA in Omaha, Nebraska, recognizing Vern Gagne as AWA Champion too. Very hmm. confusing, right? Hmm. Because uh, one thing was that, that that news traveled very slow in those days, right? Sure. There's no internet. Of course there's no internet. But there is no cable TV to cover the country. That's right. Everything was local television. Yeah, what didn't happen in your town didn't happen at all. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And maybe local newspapers, like a you know smaller circulation, and uh, you know, or even a Tribune type newspaper, but still locally uh, operated, they covered wrestling result a lot of times. So that uh, if you go back to you know like those library rest, you know that uh, reference, you can find sports pages from 1950s and find sports result and you can also find wrestling result and there was uh omaha nebraska version of awa that existed with verangania as a champion mad dog the crusher and uh and uh now that uh, it's like 50 you know 67 years later that we can go back and and well let historian or let researcher do the research but uh yeah um there were uh, two different AWA operating at the time, even within Midwest. Omaha, Nebraska version of AWA and Minneapolis, St. Paul version of AWA. It merged uh, in mid-60s, I mean, early 60s. But all in all, AWA, uh, I, I would say headquarters of AWA has always been Minneapolis and St. Paul. Vernganya's mm. hometown. Sure. Yeah. And Vernganya was already a star that he went to London Olympic in 1948 didn't compete, uh, he was alternate, but he did go to London, so he would call himself, he's been to you know, London Olympic. Then uh, he was an elite athlete, was drafted in the NFL, and became a professional wrestler at the same time. Elite athlete. And also was a star of Chicago's, you know, that uh, gold, gold, the, you know, Dumont Network, you know, you know, weekly television coming from Chicago. Dumont Network, that it doesn't exist anymore. But uh, you know, there was a, a late 40s, 48 to be exact, late 40s into mid 50s. There was a lot of d- different network channels besides the network channel we know now, right? 
and beginning of television, much like you know in Japan, you know beginning of television meaning beginning of professional wrestling, beginning of Ricky Dozen era. It, much like that in states after the war, um, first thing you know the people bought was television sets, right? And wrestling was a popular program. And all through late 40s into 50s, Chicago's, you know, that uh, Marigold Garden, uh, Chicago wrestling was really popular with uh, promoter Fred, Fred Cola. And Vern Gagne was Chicago's U.S. heavyweight title, uh, championship, a champion. Why U.S. heavyweight? Because they were still part of NWA, you know. So, uh, NWA only recognized one common world heavyweight champion, huh? So uh, the, what, who was on television was United States heavyweight champion, like Vern Gagne, the, uh, Wilbur Schneider, the, you know, oh, also, oh, of course, Buddy Rogers. And uh, when you hear United States heavyweight champion, it's almost as good as world champion, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 And Chicago Fred Collar was one time NWA president, but uh, the Chicago bunch, Chicago promoters around, you know, became so, so powerful that uh, they had falling out with, you know, Missouri's NWA people. And uh, so they recognized U.S. champion as their main event guy on television. Anyhow, Vern Gagne was already that. Uh, before he was AWA World Heavyweight Champion, he was Chicago television uh, U.S. heavyweight champion. So he was famous, national. You know, superstar. He was a familiar face. He was recognizable from television and from a lot of not just wrestling, but football, from an Olympic and in Midwest, that uh, University of Minnesota football superstar. Mm. Yeah. And also, he never told publicly, but he was a promoter too. Yeah. Right. That really, uh, you know, signifies or really. you, you know, make us realize and recognize that how wrestling business was operated then. You know, all around the country, you had wrestler promoters, you know, like Dick the Bruiser in Indianapolis, that uh, uh, wrestler promoter, like the Crusher from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the, the, the original Sheik from, the, from Detroit. Or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Von Eric from, you know, Dallas, Texas, Joe Blanchard from San Antonio, Texas, the Eddie Graham from NWA, Florida. The, each territory, each top promoter, top star was also their local promoter, too. And uh, that that's uh, pretty much why that the, uh, Vern Gagne's AWA always had another promoter, Wally, uh, Wally Carball. Uh, as the as like a head guy of the you know wrestling operation, Minneapolis Minneapolis Wrestling and Boxing Club, something like that. And uh, De- Vern didn't want people to know that he was also a promoter. No, he was only a superstar. He wanted to be recognized that way. And uh, uh, what we we learned from this uh, another thing was that I think wrestling company like a life expectation sort of is about thirty years probably. What do you think? I mean, even now? Um, in, in general sense, that, uh, you know, Vern Gagne's AWA, big successful company, it just lasted exact 30 years, 1960 mm-hmm. to 1990. You know, it 
things change over time. And uh, the, the Vern time, you know, Vern Gagne's era was over, you know, when WWE, Vince McMahon, WWF at the time, uh, start operating, you know, everything, you know, like national expansion and worldwide operation things. And uh, or when the cable TV uh, came in, that uh, people changed perception in, in lo your local wrestling. And uh, yeah, you see, Giant Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling, All Japan Pro Wrestling still exists today, but uh, Giant Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling starts in 1979, uh, 72, and he, he passes away in 1999. So it's like 20, 27, 28 years. But that was his passing. Okay, Antonio Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling also starts 1972. He sells his company 2005. So it's like, like 33 years. Mm. And, uh, all these American territories, you know, like I said, NWA Florida, the Georgia Championship Wrestling, that the Von Eric's, you know, Dallas operation, that the, even the... Uh, Promoter to promoters, it's you know changed a lot, but the Tennessee company and uh, all these uh, Detroit's the Sheik's company or Montreal's you know Rujo company, uh, Stu Hart's Calgary company. It looks to me that wrestling company lasts about thirty years. Then yeah. the next generation come in, or you know. I would say that's a, a fair uh, average uh, between if you wanted to get Matt Corral with a maybe say between 25 and 35 years. One company lasting, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Or like one generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Vern Gagne was aged, you know. Uh, I mean, he, he started AW at his pretty much peak of his wrestling career, too. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the great champion in the ring and great promoter outside. and. Uh, also, what was different from other NWA territory was that uh, Vern Gagne's AWA was uh, more like a company which had that, uh, their own 25 to 30 wrestler roster. That package traveled from Minneapolis to Green Bay, Wisconsin, to you know, you know, Iowa, to Canada, to you know, Denver, to all the way to San Francisco. So they operated much like today's WWF. You know? Other places, like I said, NWA Florida, only NWA, I mean Florida, right? Georgia Championship Wrestling, they had their own schedule and own calendar year within Georgia. Four companies in Texas, uh, Paul Bosch's Houston, that uh, Von Erich's Dallas, uh, Funk's Amarillo Territory, the Blanchers, San Antonio, Texas, they had their own calendar year. They operated within the local area. But uh, Vern Gagne's AWA had a whole Midwest. You know, it was a pretty big-sized company, you know. And uh, it wasn't like, you know, that uh, the exchanging group of wrestlers from territory to territory. When they had a certain roster, they kept the roster, you know, this AWA roster for a certain period of year. Of course, wrestlers come in, you know, come and go, though, and stay year or two, a couple of years, three years, then they move to another place, and, they, and then you have another, you know, wrestler come in. Like, you know, Nick Bakwinko, you know, AWA champion, right? He wouldn't come into AWA until, like, 71, but stayed until the end. And a uh, lot of promoters don't want you to be Homer, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, because I want you to stay as long as you draw money, 
and uh, yeah, uh, but uh, you may not be staying here. I mean, you're making home here or something. And the wrestlers were like journeymen at the time, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. for a long time. But some people made home in certain places, you know, and uh, AW had their own roster. And uh, they kept the same roster for decades. That was a problem at the end of AWA. You know, when I started, uh, you know, as a ringside photographer in January of 1981, the main event was Vern Gagne against Nick Bockwinkle. You know, and uh, they had been doing that for 10 years and they were going to do that a little bit longer, right? Mm-hmm. And they had wrestlers like, Mad Dog Vashon, The Crusher, Baron Von Rashke, the, you know, the, the wrestlers they had for decades, you know. And then when I started, that, uh, oh, it's, it's like I, 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 that's going to make me sound very, very old, man. But uh, Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis were two young guys. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, huh? Yeah. Yeah, oh, do you have, you know, you still had Ray Stevens, uh, and uh, Ray Stevens had a home in, in Minnesota too. And time to time, Pat Patterson still come in. People like Black Jack Lanza, Black Jack Mulligan, Cowboy Bobby Duncan. You know that the, I'm sure all those names sound ancient to you. <laughs> those <laughs> you know? are famous names, and they're definitely famous in specific areas of the states more so. Yeah, than yeah. And Red Bastin, yeah. And uh, there were. Uh, yeah, it's like a, and Wahoo Mc, younger in his prime Wahoo McDaniel, younger superstar Billy Graham, uh, Billy Robinson in, in his prime. Yeah, and there's a movie you know the, the called The Wrestler, the movie motion mm-hmm. picture movie, not the Mickey Rokes The Wrestler, but the Vern Gagne's version of movie The Wrestler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty uh, bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the Vern Gagne story himself. And that the main character was also uh, uh, Billy Robinson in different name, you know, mm-hmm. the, the title drama that the greatest challenge champion Vergania is facing uh, and the greatest opponent is Billy Robinson. And that in that movie, you see a young Texas outlaws who are young Dusty Rose and young Dick Murdoch. And in the movie, you see rather overweight rookie Ric Flair in there. Right. Yeah. Right. He and, was uh, originally from the Ferngani AWA territory. Yeah, and uh, Billy Robinson was a coach. Mm-hmm. A lot of people came out of that, you know, like like people like Sergeant Slaughter, that uh, you know, Kazuo Bazidi, the Iron Sheik. He, he was already an Olympic wrestler or, or amateur, you know, national champion type who moved to America, and uh, he started in you know, Minnesota too. Yeah, and. Uh, oh, there's so many. There's so many. Playboy Buddy Rose. Uh, did uh, did Rick Steamboat train there? Yes, Rick. Yes, Ricky Steamboat as a Dick Blood. Yes, he mm-hmm. was coached under Vern Gagne and, and and Billy Robinson, but he didn't really stay. Uh, he was gonna go back to Florida, but uh, he started in North Carolina, and that was very you know fortunate thing that. Uh, you, you know, young Ric Flair and young Ricky Steamboat pretty much clicked, and their single match lasted what next thirty years, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of thing evolved, yeah, yeah. So it was a good thing that some people stayed, 
some people left. See, Sergeant Slaughter was Bobby Remus, you know, and he struggled a little bit. Then he traveled around the country and he came back as Super Destroyer Mark II. And he had, he had his run. Then after Super Destroyer Mark II, he, um, he took his mask off and became Sergeant Slaughter and went to WWF and be a, became a challenger for Bob Backlund. Big star, you know. Then turned babyface, so it made him be even bigger, you know. And there was like, the territory was there, but, you know, basically they, you know, that the far away enough that they uh, traded talent, you know, that uh, when we talk about Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis, they, after AWA, they went to WWE, you know, WWF, and individually became challenged, you know, that the East-West connection of Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis broke up and became, you know, single competitor. and each challenged Bob Backlund for the WWF title at the time. Oh, young Dan Morocco, you know, spent years and years uh, in AWA. Yeah, mm-hmm. young Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. They call it. You know, the Ace Cub Bob Randy Orton's father. Uh, he he was an AWA wrestler in rookie years. Yeah, there's so many. There's so many people that uh, came in. You know, and, was you know, it spent around years this in AWA. time? Was it around this time that Bill Robinson and, and Vern Gagne wrestled for uh, international wrestling in Japan? Yes. In, in early, 70, early to mid-70s, AWE had a business partnership with AWE, mm-hmm. International Wrestling Enterprise. Yeah, that the second company in Japan that had the people like Strong Kobayashi, Russia Kimura, Great Kusatsu, Mighty Noe, Animal Hamaguchi, Thunder, Sugiyama. What's interesting in seventies though that uh, these IWE Japanese wrestlers stars they all had like English subtitle name mm-hmm. <laughs> you know Shozo Kobayashi was strong Kobayashi right Masao Kimura was Russia Kimura and Heigo Hamaguchi Animal Hamaguchi and they all had well of course giant Shohei Baba giant giant Baba and, you know the Kanji Inoki was more famous as Antonio Inoki always and uh, and after well, of course Jumbo Tsuruda. But after that generation, you know, the, I guess there was a trend. And, uh, you know, people like Tatsumi Fujinami or after that, people like Keiji Muto or the Mitsuharu Misawa, they, I don't think they wanted to have that title, you know, the, the Katakana title, right, name. So they went with their own name. But that was very 70s. These Japanese stars had this uh, English, you know, almost subtitled name. And IWA was a company. And Vern Gagne's AWA had a uh, partnership with uh, IWE. And yes, Vern Gagne's first trip to Japan in 1970 was, yes, uh, with IWA. And the, the, at the time, I was a little kid, so I didn't know. But now I understand that the, how, how strong Vern Gagne's position was. He came in and championed, AWA champion, right? Mm-hmm. You would think that the title match will have like a out of control DQ finish or double counter or whatnot to make Japanese style look good, don't you think? That's what would usually happen in all Japan or New Japan. Yeah, or NWA World Champion going to different territory and and, and, and you know get to you know, have a Florida Heavyweight Champions Challenge or Georgia Heavyweight Champions Challenge that the local hero babyface will, will almost beat him but never get the title, right? I mean, basic formula. But uh, 
1970s version of you know AW World Champion Vern Gagne came to IWE and actually beat people like Strong Kobayashi and in Japan, you know, and uh, wow, this champion is really really good. I mean, in my kids' eyes, you know, that uh, well, this champion must be somebody really special that you know came in, in you know for Japanese tour for like uh, just week or two week period and get have a challenge from Japanese then cha- champion class uh, at least then and then just one at a time Vern Gagne beat everybody in Japan wow right bald-headed champion <laughs> you know yeah Come he stayed on top be- for a long time even when he into his oh yeah I mean, almost too long right and he he's kind of the prototype and- for that yeah I think so I think so He's that and not because the first being person bald, I would think of. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. It has being nothing to bald do with was like a, he was like that when he was thirty. <laughs> right. Guess. Yeah. That's that's right. That's right. Yeah. But uh, he stayed on top. That because how many times that uh, he was NWA champion? You talk about you know Ric Flair being sixteen time world champion, and now it was Randy Orton's twentieth anniversary with WWE, and he was fourteen time champion. John Cena, the Triple H. Uh, Oh, what the 14, 15, 16 time champions. I think Vern Gagne had more. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> they didn't count because the news didn't travel, you know, or wasn't as accurate, you know, or or even had detail outside your town, right? Mm-hmm. So he might have dropped the title here and then and won that back next month or something. And so you we better stop counting, you know. So. I'm pretty sure that he won AWA World Title a lot more than the other, you know, Ric Flair or Luthes or, you know, your your Triple H John Cena, because you know, mm-hmm. he was in Midwest. Not to say that he wasn't good. I'm sure he was a big draw and popular babyface and a hero in Midwest. And some people said he was like Hulk Hogan before there was Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, for people's eyes. And for yeah, there's a one good uh, podcast out there, the AW Unleashed, mm-hmm. by Mick Kirsch and George Shire. That uh, he's th- those you know, I, I know Mick. I know he's a friend of mine. Uh, he these guys are 15 years older than I am. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so they can talk about 70s or the, you know 60s and 70s thing like it was yesterday. You know, mm-hmm. I can't do that. You know, but uh, yeah, that's one. Very good, uh, um, uh, like a AWA reference, because they were regular at Saturday morning TV taping at TV studio when they taped like a three or four weeks worth of television all star wrestling. And you sit all afternoon, just watch name wrestler squash enhanced talent. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like a ritual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, that the highlight was when they taped the interviews, you know, but they didn't tape the interviews in front of the audience because that would uh, disclose what they want people to know. Because, like I said, you know, they were ta- you know videotaping the localized interview, same content, just change name of town. In Green Bay, Wisconsin, I'll beat you, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then Denver, Colorado, I'll beat you. In St. Paul, Minnesota, St. Paul, you know, I'll, I'll come and beat you. It was just like same interview over and over, just change the name of town. 
now the, the, the footage will, will be sent to other local affiliate television station around Midwest, you know, so they have their AWA TV show localized in the, you know, Colorado or Utah or Winnipeg, Canada or South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, Illinois. Television was basically local, you know. That was also epitome of AWA era until, you know, people discovered cable television. When was the when was the first time you had uh, you watched the cable television? Mm, my memory. early 80s. Yeah, like mid 80s. Mid 80s. Yeah, but not every house had it. Well, that somebody's by, parents. By had the late it. 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, they were offering. You know, there's your basic package, basic like, cables. There's like the two, three, four, five channels, and then there's the maybe like the average, and then they were they had satellites. Right, Satellite but somebody have to come in and put the an antenna uh, up on your roof. For yeah, something. that's for any premium stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, uh, basically, all through sixties and seventies for a good twenty year period. That sounds like forever, right? Mm -hmm. Wrestling basically was all local, you know, like a local franchise. Therefore, television was such. And if you lived in Minnesota and watched All Star Wrestling every week, that's all wrestling you get. You know? And, uh, yeah. But AWA itself was pretty big territory. Like I said, you know, parts of Canada, parts of, you know, the great you know, lake area, Wisconsin to Illinois to Iowa to South, North and South Dakota and Nebraska and parts of Missouri even. That's, that sounds like all Midwestern, huh? <laughs> yeah, but you know, we say West Coast, East Coast, uh, the Midwest, the, the big chunk of the area that we're talking about today. Yeah, with I, I think Tanya, so. I that's think maybe so. like the, the the it's it's people say it's the heart of uh, the United States. It's just the the big other chunk of what's going yeah, on. In the United yeah, yeah. And on on the, the opening you know opening video of AWA All Star Wrestling, American Wrestling Association. Major League of Professional Wrestling. It was unbelievable mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah, yeah. And they had their stars, you know, that the, the Crusher uh, sometimes called up his cousin, Dick the Bruiser. Then you have this big Dick you know, Bruiser and Crusher tag team. Only happens once or twice a year because it's a big deal. And going up against young Texas Outlaws, Dick Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes. And uh, you know what I'm saying? That's like a big money card, you know? Yeah, and before uh, uh, the Bach, uh, before Nick Bakwenko became singles world heavyweight champion, Nick Bakwenko and Ray Stevens was the longest reigning AWA tag team champion, which was a big deal too. And they made uh, Vern's son, Greg Gagne, and his partner, Jumping Jim Bronzel, high flyers. And they were very much favorite, you know, tag team. And uh, Vern Gagne was also responsible for recruiting a lot of, you know, former Olympians. Like Ken Patera, late Chris Taylor, you know? Uh, yeah. Brad Reagan's. Uh, a little bit later. Brad Reagan's don't start until like 81. 15 or two. years later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because he was in 70. Brad was in 76 month, uh, Montreal Olympic and US by, boycotted 1980 Olympic and he turned pro for real. But he went back to LA Olympic in 1984 as a coach. Mm hmm. 
yeah, I mean, Olympic coach. I mean, that that's how good he was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, real so deal. real deal. And my, my friend, late Masa Saito, came in in 80, uh, 83. And uh, yeah, I, uh, we became friends. In 1984, Jumbo Tsuruta came in as cha- world heavyweight champion. You know, he, he beat Nick Bakuinko in Tokyo. And he came back with championship belt and trouble around the horn and the defended title, you know, with the, all the Japanese press and television. And I was like overwhelmed, you know. I was local photographer, Japanese kid, right? And uh, when Jumbo Tsuda became AWA champion in Japan, he brought all the television and new, you know, sports pages and all the existing wrestling magazine photographers and reporters with him, you know? And uh, yeah. And that you had to, you had to, were you a part of that? Were you in charge of that or what? How was that like? What oh, not that? in charge though. I was uh, what, 21 years old, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, 22. So and, you were just uh, what, no, you were taking was... pictures or you were just writing, were you, were you writing? I was with that? them and some, yeah, some people recognized me because, you know, I already had the credit in the magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're the guy who lives in Minnesota and do this. And, uh, yes, sir. And I was like. I mean, all those guys were, what, 5 to 10, 15 years older than I was, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but ended up meeting those people was, you know, good for a college kid, huh? Sure. You know? Yeah. 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 Exciting. Exciting. And also, I might want to do this, you know, after I'm, you know, I'm out of college, you know? Because <laughs> now it's 40 years later, I'm doing this, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that was very exciting. AWA was, yeah, I'm today we're talking about awa then and then uh, it was very modern you know company you know had the same vision that uh, vince mcmahon would have you know in 80s that they had not a territory but the one company op- operating uh, wrestling you know house shows and tv shows and whatnot in very larger area you know and uh, not like using the local talents in different parts of the country, but the AWA had its own, you know, 30 wrestler roster who traveled around the country. And they, there was like a traveling agent working exclu- exclusively for AWA, the same building that, uh, well, they didn't mean to, but uh, there are so many wrestlers traveling so many different places and uh, they started booking hotels and stuff for them. And it's like, and, you know, all start traveling or something that they named it and then uh, it became their full-time you know job and then it operated much like you know later on you know 80s wwe and ironically though awa uh was damaged the most when vince mcmahon's wwe 1984 vision national expansion started previous summer you know like if you and it's it's already written in uh and what's the name of the book you know that uh, uh sex and lies and videotapes no not that that's the name of the movie uh, uh i mean a wrestling book yeah 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 it's it's written about it already but uh, vince mcmahon came to uh, came to Vern Gagne, offered them you know offer him to buy awa Mm-hmm. You know, but Vern wouldn't sell it. In the same, uh, at the same time, you know, when Vince McMahon came to Calgary, Alberta, Stu Hart ended up, you know, selling it because he was ready to close down the shop. You know, mm-hmm. 
little bit older and also right. you know local territory in exchange that uh, Vince McMahon promised to Stu Hart that uh, the, their top wrestler you know will be hired by WWE like Bret Hart, Davy Boy, that uh, Jim Neidhart, Owen Hart. Oh, Owen Hart was still in high school then, but the, Dynamite know, Kid. Dynamite, yes, Dynamite Kid, right, right. So that kind of operation happened. So Vince went around in summer of 1983, offered a lot of company to buy their company. And Vern Gagne's AW was one of the company who, you know, did not sell the company, not not giving up, you know. And Vince McMahon's very famous quote was that I don't negotiate, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> yeah, very famous quote. I don't negotiate. Meaning that I'm taking over, <laughs> you know. And what damaged AW the most was that, see, 1982, 83. Hulk Hogan was full time with AWA, you know, full time, and he was living in in, in uh, Richfield or Brooklyn Park or somewhere like that. And and he already bought the townhouse there. He was ready to live in Minnesota, and he basically wanted to win. Uh, Title from Bakwinko, and, and, and there was a Hulk Hogan challenger, Nick Bakwinko champion program, pretty much all year long, you know. And then Hulk Hogan always won, you know, always almost won, or a lot of times, twice, three times, he actually beat Nick Bakwinko in the, in the middle of the ring, one, two, three, right, <clears throat> and uh, put the belt around his waist and left the building. And people watching it thought that you just witnessed the title switch right big title change and if you watch the following week's awa television that uh, that the president of awa stanley blackburn come in and return the title to bachwinkle because there was such and such you know what i'm saying and so the people thought you just witnessed the title change and it wasn't. And uh, that's how Bernganya operated, you know, early 80s business, not knowing the time, right? People more, knew more about, you know, what's going on than uh, probably he, he wanted people to do, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, we still have to talk about 70s operation into 80s operation, how big AWA was and why it was so damaged by WWE, Vince McMahon's national expansion. That's very important. That led to the end of AWA. They went out of business in 1990. We talked about 30 years, but uh, it was the end of Bernganya's style business too, right? Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Oh, can't forget, you know, uh, we, we got to mention Dr. X as a big, huge superstar of 70s AWA. Right. Dr. X. Yeah, he was. Yeah, in Japan, the destroyer. But in AWA, he had a different mask, different identity. It's a huge superstar. That'd be completely another identity, Dr. X. And you know, the blondie, you know, had, had a Dr. X t shirt in her. Yeah. 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 He was a yeah. merchandising uh, innovator, especially wrestling. He was one of the first. Yeah, I think um, so. I, I can't think of many other wrestlers who had so much of their own merchandise or brand merchandise for sale so long uh-huh. ago he had so bobblehead figures here. and yeah elements here and elements there so we gotta go back you know this 1983 you know 
the end of AWA era is very important. So we got to talk about that in next, you know, the, the part two. But today, yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope we touched up on a lot of things that was necessary to touch. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, we looked at the the deep history of AWA from not just uh, Vern Gagne point of view, but from the early early roots. Yeah. Yes. We needed to because uh, AWA operated like a big company when other territory had a local area and just one state, you know, one state area. But uh, AWA had a multi, you know, states, uh, the whole Midwest territory on their own and, and operated like big company, you know, traveling company. They're flying wrestlers when everybody else was driving. Yeah, you could say AWA was one of the blueprints for how American wrestling uh, shaped Evolved. itself into now. Uh, mm-hmm, before, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, look at from the mid-80s WWF, uh, a lot of those wrestlers were, we'll get to it next week, but were, they were from AWA. The layout at the time for television and WWF was pretty similar to what AWA's was, too. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the look, the I mean, the... The wrestlers, the talent. Field. Yeah, when, and and when Vince McMahon came and offered to buy AWA, that uh, Vern Gagne wouldn't sell it because he felt that he could compete, which he couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting story because it's very much uh, older generation versus younger generation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and Vern Gagne was friend with Vince McMahon Senior. That's why they always called Vince Vince Junior. <laughs> Which I don't yeah. think he. I don't think he enjoyed it. Oh, he enjoyed. No, he doesn't enjoy that at all. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we'll we'll wrap up next week. We'll talk more about from the seventies and eighties to the end of the AWA. We'll talk yeah, more about. Yeah, if you learn about AWA, we learn a lot more about wrestling itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of important uh, characters and personalities from the time too that were. Huge yeah, stars. we'll still talk about. You know, we haven't touched Road Warriors era. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mad Dog yeah. shown. Sure, sure. Or Jesse Ventura, how important he has become. Or Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Hulk Hogan. Became Hulk Hogan there. Yeah. And uh, quite, much. A, quite a few Japanese talent, too. Yeah. Saito, yeah, that too. Jumbo, Suda. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And not the undercard, but the pretty much the top star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, next week we'll wrap up with that. So if we have questions or any uh, comments or anything, how can we get a hold of you, Fumi? Uh, on Twitter at Fumihiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihiko Dayo, or Fumi Saito on Facebook. Please message me first. And I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R on Twitter. Uh, until next week, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo. Bye.